This is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my, cho my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will, not, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness I am the Lord that is my name I will not give glory to another or my praise to idols see the former things have taken place and the new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Father God, thank you again for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you that you speak to us. You spoke to us in the past, explaining your coming, explaining your death, explaining your rising. We are comforted, Lord. In this, in this fact that you are here with us, that you are around us, that you take care of us, even when we don't know you are. We invite you here, Lord, to shroud us with your spirit. We invite you here, Lord. Please accept this praise of song and of word, of prayer, of teaching. If I sing but don't have love, I waste my breath with every song I bring. An empty voice 
a hollow noise If I speak with silver tongue Convince a crowd but don't have love I leave a bitter taste With every word I say So let my life be the proof The proof of your love Let my love look like you And what you're made of How you lived, how you died Love is sacrifice Oh, let my life be the proof the proof of your love If I give to a needy soul But don't have love then who is poor It seems all the poverty is found in me so let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. Let my love look like you and what you're made of. How you live, how you died, love is sacrifice. So let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. When it's all said and done oh, 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 When we sing our final song Only love remains 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 Only love So let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. Let my love look like you and what you're made of. How you live, how you die, love is sacrifice. So let my life be the proof, the proof of your So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, 
but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In this season of the gospel that we're in, we have uh, chosen to reflect on the theme of resilience, that, uh, that essential to our walk with God is the capacity to bounce back, to be resilient, to have the kind of tensile strength we need when the world bends us and tries to shape us into new forms that, that are contrary to God's call. And so we've focused on the notion of characteristics of the resilient life during Advent. And last two Sundays on the nature of God as a resilient God. And now in the season of, of Epiphany, we, we pivot and we look at what are the characteristics of a resilient church? What does resiliency look like in our common life together? And we begin this morning with the notion of welcoming. And I can really think of no better person to speak to us about creating a welcoming church than our Pacific Conference Bishop, Bishop Perry Engel. Seven, eight and a half years ago now, <clears throat> Bishop Perry came to a burned out, broken, frustrated Mennonite bishop and uh, gave him an opportunity, welcomed him into a new world, uh, this strange new world of the brethren in Christ who, who you know, as Mennonites, we kind of thought of the brethren in Christ as our fallen cousins who, <laughs> who weren't quite as thoroughly committed to the Anabaptist vision as we are. What I've learned instead uh, is here's a, a church and a conference of churches that are very different, very unique, each one of them individual, but undergirding all of that is a desire to live out the gospel in daily life. And I think that may have something to do with history and tradition, but I think it also has something to do with the bishop who leads us. So Bishop Perry, really grateful that you're here this morning. Come, let me pray with you and you bring the word to us. Lord, I invite you to open the lips of your brother Perry and let him speak your good news to us this morning. Grant him wisdom and joy and authority and power as he ministers the good news in our midst. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for those kind words. I was just thinking uh, what a marvelous work, two marvelous works I want to highlight. One, the marvelous work that God has done in the life of this church. The coolest thing about being here this morning is that I, I know a few of you, but a lot of you I don't know. And that is that to me is really cool. But the second thing is the work that God has done in the life of uh, Jeff and Debbie as 
as you have ministered to them. I have had to be able to, to look from afar to see what you have done to a guy who's pretty much all the things that he described um, and more. <laughs> and to really see how by your love and grace as the people of God, you have, uh, you have loved uh, your pastor and pastor's <coughs> wife back to health and vitality and ministry. That's a really good thing. And so you, you would think that the Church of Jesus Christ would be one of the most welcoming places you could imagine. You would like to think, is there something behind me? Yes. You would think, <laughs> and I, I'm really bad getting my PowerPoint together, so you have some little cards that have like no information on them. You'll have whatever's up there. You would think that the church is a church for all people, and of all places, it would be a welcoming place. And uh, unfortunately, my experience of uh, growing up in the church, that has not always been true. Um, now, I have to confess that we used to go to a church, and one of my favorite times, if not my most favorite time during the service, was the welcome time. You haven't had that this morning, but a lot of churches will just interject into the midst of the service, this kind of false, fake uh, welcome to people around you, you know. So you make a beeline to people you already know. You talk about how bad the service is and what the pastor's doing wrong. Run out and get a cup of coffee and you come back together and uh, all of that. But there's this one particular time that was just fantastic. It was, um, and I wasn't there, but my wife and daughters were there. And... Uh, probably part of the reason that we graciously transitioned out of that church. Uh, it was during welcome time, you know, okay, now everybody turn to your neighbor and welcome them and stuff. And so as the story goes, there was a, a younger man there that was probably relatively new to the church, uh, marked and stood out by the fact that he had uh, a marijuana leaf prominently displayed on his, on his t-shirt. Uh, and, uh, and there is one, I'm sure, well-intentioned lady who was a little bit older in the Lord and who had been at the church just a little bit longer. But she made a beeline for him, and my daughters remember clearly her uh, welcoming him. <laughs> welcome, welcome to our church. And then leaning up close to his ear and saying something into his ear that made him, in the middle of this church, take his shirt off, and put it down beside him. <laughs> Fortunately, add something on underneath. But apparently, in her welcoming gesture, she had communicated in some way that him being in the church, he did not quite fit the profile of the church of which we we're a part. And she just, I'm sure, well-intentioned, wanted to help him out so that he would fit in just a little bit more. I don't know if he ever came back. I hope he didn't. <laughs> I mean, truth be told, I, I have a tendency to be pretty honest, so uh, I, if, I, if I'm too honest, that's just the way it is. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I'm so excited 
to talk to you on this theme this morning of being a, a church for all people, to, of being a welcoming church, is that I really feel like the, G, the church of Jesus Christ has a whole long way to go to get past this obsession with uh, only accepting people who look like us, who are like us, who are cleaned up or whatever already fit the mold. The church has a really long way to go. And I'm hoping that um, by us talking about this portion of scripture together, that I can help you and you can help the church become more of what Christ intended for it to be. This passage actually is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. And that's the New Testament being the, the portion of scripture. It's from the birth of Christ on through the planning of the early church. It's, it's significant in that it, it really creates a watershed moment, uh, a beautiful watershed moment when God does what I feel is the, the very first of the great reformations of the church. Um, the first reformation, as I would describe it, was when God speaks to his people that the church is no longer just for Jewish believers or people from a Jewish background. It's no longer an exclusivistic church, but it's now a church that's opened up to all people. It's really, it's impossible for, to, for us to imagine just how, uh, what a, a groundbreaking moment this was. Um, but you have to think in terms of, uh, of, of a, maybe a person or a group of people that you just have no affinity for. They are the furthest from your mind of people that you think could ever experience the, the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. You have to wrap your mind around them that they are so contrary to the way you view the world. And then imagine God extending a hand of love and grace to them. Well, the story, and I, I won't be able to read the whole thing, but it's so important that uh, you understand the, the entire flow of this uh, Acts chapter 10 story. And uh, let me just set the stage. It's post-Jesus uh, going back to the Father. Uh, the early church is just kind of getting its wheels underneath it. Peter is the point person for that. And uh, Jesus has already told him that you're, you're going to be a significant foundational person in the leadership of this new church. But chapter 10 of Acts begins in Caesarea, not among the Jewish people, but with a man named Cornelius. And, and I want you to understand that in those first two verses of chapter 10 of Acts, so much is packed in there. You just, uh, when you read the Bible, don't just run through details. Details are given to us about people and places and times because they are so important to the context of what God is teaching his people. But let me read these first two verses. It says, at Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. It goes on to talk about how Cornelius at uh, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon 
was, was praying that God revealed to him that there was someone he was to send for who would come and, and further clarify and, and fill in the blanks of, of his faith, his, his early Christian faith. That three o'clock, again, catch the details, that three o'clock in the afternoon is important because at that very same time in Jerusalem would have been the time that they are beginning the evening uh, sacrificial offering in the temple. The Jewish people would gather around that event as the central activity of, of the Jewish people. At that very same time, this Roman centurion is praying to God. Isn't that cool? Different places, different people, different contexts, completely different worlds, but seeking God in a very similar way. I just want to say, let's stop assuming that God does not speak to people in a variety of different ways and places. Let's begin to assume that God is always speaking he is always whispering or shouting or talking to people no matter what their different context. Stop assuming that God isn't working. Start assuming that he is all the time. And so here he is. Let me just tell you a little bit about what's told us by, uh, by Cornelius. Caesarea, and I've been there, was the, uh, was the capital, uh, the Roman capital in Judea, it was a port side city that had built a uh, really a, uh, a man-made port that was larger than even the port and the harbor in Athens. Uh, you can still go there and see the remains of these giant stones that had built this harbor. Um, fantastic buildings. It was, uh, it was the Roman center, capital if you will, in Judea. And this is where Cornelius lives. He's a centurion, which basically means he was a military man. Centurion means he was over 100 men underneath him. He was in what was known as the Italian Regiment, which was kind of the special services of the, of, of the Roman uh, guard or whatever. He was uh, in charge of these special services, a military man. And it says that all he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He would have been a member of the hated occupying army in Judea. He would have been a pork eater. Let me just say it. <laughs> you know? Bacon cheeseburger right here, centurion. <laughs> he would have been uncircumcised. All of these things were things that were abhorrent to the Jewish people this man was. Not only that, he represented the forces that, uh, uh, let's just say it the way he is, the men, and the, uh, the men who actually drove the nails through the hands and the feet of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was that guy. Do you ever think that God just has a super sick sense of humor? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I'm, I have this vision of God sitting up in heaven and God getting this idea, this God-sized thing. Brings all his homeboys, the home angels in, you know, <laughs> gathers in, you know, go, check this out. I got this great idea. And they're like, oh, no, God has an idea. <laughs> I don't know how God sees everything. I think God has just a really big 
high-definition screen. You just see, everybody gathers in, popcorn's out, soda, you know, everybody's there. Okay, what's God going to do now? God's just up there busting up. I got, I got this idea. Let's, like, tear down the walls between the Jews and the Gentiles, but check it out. Look at who I'm going to use. Roll tape, you know. Everybody's just like going, oh, God. I mean, no offense. I mean... <laughs> I get, I get that kind of idea when, when God does something. He goes out of his way to make this point. If only we're sensitive enough or bright enough to listen to what God is saying. So anyway, Cornelius is all of these things that Peter is not. But one of the things they hold in common is that he and his family are devout. He is God-fearing which means he, he has this sense uh, and this longing to serve the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and has heard most likely about Jesus as being the fulfillment of, of what God has always been doing. He's, he, he fears God, he respects God, he holds God in great respect. And it's not just a superficial thing, it says he gives generously to those in need. He prays at the same time as the Jewish people. He holds all these things in common, but he's so different. At the, just down the road, at another port side town called uh, Joppa, I guess it's, uh, what is it, Haifa now? Um, Peter is, is staying in the house of a, a gentleman by the name of Simon the Tanner. In verse 9 of chapter 10 says, About noon the following day, as, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. You know, this is post-lunch kind of like, uh, I wish I'd get the food on. You know, food from the sky. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, still in the vision, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Peter is very, very much uh, aware, very well versed in the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Those dietary laws were still in place at this time, and he had never broken those laws. If you've ever known someone who keeps kosher or goes through all of the work to, to main, still this today maintain those dietary laws, you understand that it takes uh, great discipline and it becomes just a part of your, uh, your way of being. Three times this this sheet falls down, and, and each time there's a, there's a bacon cheeseburger, and there's fried eggs and, and bacon, and there's, uh, I don't know, bacon-covered figs and all of this. All, every time it comes down, and Peter's just like going, oh, I hate bacon, you know. I've heard it's good, but I hate bacon. I can't eat bacon. So, and, and each time he has this vision, when at the very same time, God is orchestrating uh, some of these servants from Cornelius to come down from Caesarea and to figure out who this guy Peter was that they were supposed to find and engage and invite to come to their house. God's orchestrating it all. Orchestrating it all. 
And again, I want you to think about something is that um, when people come to church, people who are new, people you haven't seen, people that surprise you, people you don't know, um, do you ever stop to think that God has been working over time in that person's life or in those people's lives or working over a period of time in your life and at that very moment is a God a God thing coming together. At that very moment, God has been working over time. I think we miss so much of what God is doing in our life, so much of what God is doing in the church because we don't assume that God is always working. Start assuming. Start assuming that. Well, these guys show up and they say, are, are, are you Peter? And he's like, yeah, just had a bad dream. What do you need? And uh, all these things come together and they invite him down to the house of Cornelius. And as the story goes, um, Verse 22, the men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Next day, Peter heads out and uh, goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is so overwhelmed with a sense of awe and reverence that, that Peter would come into his presence that he bows down as if Peter is a god. And then Peter says, stand up, I'm just a guy like you, which was a big thing for Peter to say, I'm only a man myself. And then, verse 28, Peter says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. And then, after this meeting, after this engagement, uh, verse 34 and 35 are those key verses that are um, on those little cards that you have and that were read before. And I, I, I just want you to ask God to speak to you of the significance and the weightiness of Peter, the, literally the, the Jesus' best friend. And Peter had gone through a lot, lot of deep weeds. But Peter has come to a point where he's ready to launch this movement to start this worldwide church of Jesus Christ. And he comes to this moment to this very moment, and here's what he said. It says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You'd have to be there. You'd have to be there. You can even now, today, hear the, the walls of division come tumbling down, these walls of hostility, this, this bitterness from a Jewish man towards the representative of, of the Roman Empire, those, those soldiers that, that drove the nails through uh, Jesus' hands, these, these occupiers, these, these 
friends of Herod, just, you, you can't imagine how despicable they were to someone like Peter. I love those words, I now realize. You ever have those aha moments? I now realize that, that the way I've been doing things, the way I've been thinking of things, the way I've been looking at God, the way I've been doing church, I now realize that God has something more, has something deeper, has something better, has something bigger than I ever could have imagined. I now realize. I now realize. God is bigger and more loving and more full of grace than I ever, ever in my wildest imagination could have imagined. I now realize that this God does not show favoritism doesn't like Jews better than Gentiles? No, he doesn't show favoritism. As a matter of fact, he accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. We spend so much time focusing on how we are different from other people. Now, you don't, because you're, you know, thoroughly modern or postmodern group of people, you know, you understand that you know, all of that stuff. And it's like, come on. We all just really like people who are like us, right? We all play favorites. We all look down on people who don't see politics or economics or the world the way we look at it. I now realize that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. I want to suggest to you that, that the greatest lesson from this passage that Peter got, and, and I just want to rock your world with this, this is what Peter realized at that moment. You ready for this? The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. <laughs> Our bishop is a genius. <laughs> wow. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. And when we spend most of our time uh, thinking about who God likes better than other people, God is constantly trying to tell us down, no, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for every single person that I made in my image. And that's everybody. And so, what in just the next few minutes, I won't take a lot of time on this, but how can the church become a more welcoming place? Well, I would suggest to you is that we, we need to begin to look at the people around us more in terms of what we have in common with them than what we have different from them. And as, as a church, instead of focusing on our differences with other people, what divides us, we need to begin to focus on what we have in common with every other person who has ever lived. And that's where I, I gave you that little card. If, 
if you're into blanks, that's fine. But I want to give you a, I want to give you a common, four common things. I'll call them the common four. <laughs> there you go, teachers. I, I love you, teachers. This is the common four that we have with every single person who's ever lived. Okay? First of all, we have a common condition. We have a common condition. You know what that condition is? The condition is brokenness. Every single person in this room, myself included, Jeff included, don't mean to speak for you, brother. Every single one of us has experienced brokenness in some way, shape, or form. The Bible calls it the effects of sin in our lives and in the world around us. And what too often happens in the church is that uh, p new people come in, think, this is a group of people that has it all together, right? I'm broken, and they're fixed. And we're never really going to be able to, to relate or understand one another. And when you go in and a, a well-meaning person makes you change your, church, your shirt, it just reinforces the fact you're right. I suck, I wear the wrong clothes, and I am broken, and she's fixed. Well, let's get past that. Why don't we? We're all broken. The Bible says, for all fall short of the glory of God, which means none of us properly and adequately reflect the holiness of God. We're all broken. I wrote a piece in, in the church uh, magazine in part recently uh, that some of you may have read, but I, I want to share this with everybody because uh, this, was, I, this was one of those aha moments for me. I get together with some young guys, um, and uh, there was a gal there this last time at, uh, outside Starbucks up in the colonies in North Upland along the 210. And we talk about Jesus and the church and uh, how inadequate we are and stuff like this. And this well-dressed uh, gentleman comes up to our table and goes, excuse me, he was very refined, you know. He's, he wasn't like me, but he's very refined. He said, excuse me, I overheard your conversation. Here's my contact information. Would you mind if I join you next time you get together? We're like, yeah, sure, yeah. You know, if you want to, go for it. And so uh, next time he comes around, uh, he sits down and... Uh, we find out that he is an emergency room doctor. He and his wife are both emergency room doctors. They got three daughters like me, cool, we can connect on that. Um, but he's involved in a church. He sat down, he told us a little bit about what he does. He goes, I wonder if you mind me sharing an image that I have of the church. We're like going, sure, go for it, you know, whatever. You invited yourself into our group, yeah. <laughs> listening in on our conversation, he says, it occurs to me that my work as an emergency room physician, that the church should be more like uh, an emergency room. He goes, I have this image of a church where everybody in the church is there because they are experiencing sickness or brokenness of some kind. As a matter of fact, everybody in the church is wearing those hospital robes. I'm like going, I like this guy, you know. 
He goes, you know those kind of robes that are open in the back. I'm like going, yeah, I, I know it. <laughs> the visual's too much, okay? Um, says everybody in the church is wearing these robes. The pastor's wearing this robe. The choir's wearing the robes. The choir can see the pastor from the back wearing the robe. <laughs> says everybody in the church is walking around with those ivy poles. That's a visual. Because everybody understands that the people there are broken and in need of something that they don't have. He says, can you imagine a church like that? I'm still trying to get my mind away from the visual. And then I started to think about it more. And I'm like going, why is it that the church goes to such an extent to pretend like it's people who have it all together? I don't know anybody who has it all together. I don't have my stuff all together. And then I started to think about my neighborhood, and I started to think about the lady behind us, Phyllis, whose husband died prematurely of pancreatic cancer, and she's still working through that. And the lady on the east side of us who's been married multiple times is now a middle-aged woman who's living there by herself. And, and the gentleman across from her who's, who's uh, a retired pastor, but his wife got sick of him and left and took the dog that he just absolutely loved. And then the new people across the street that are, are really, the guy really only talks to me when he's really wasted. But he's really honest at that point, so it's like a good, good we need to go out a few more times. <laughs> And we really connected on, on Halloween night when he was just like, he was laying in the driveway. And everybody else was out there taking shots and hanging out and listening to music. And then the people whose driveway we were in were the, the women are, who used to be married and have a whole slew of, of foster kids and then the people over here. Guy told me, confided in me, a number of months ago, his brother committed suicide after he got out of uh, Afghanistan because of uh, PTSD. These, these are the people that surround, these are the people that I could reach over the fence or across the street and touch. These are the, the people that God has brought into our, and that's just, that's just my neighbor. We share a common condition. People inside the church, people outside the church, we're all a part of the church of the open road. And I would suggest one of the things that a welcoming church needs to do more often and, and more conscientiously is admit their common condition of brokenness. So that when people come in, they feel like they have some people who can relate to them. The second thing that we have in common with all other people is common needs. Common needs.
All of, our, all of the people around us, all the people that come through our doors, all of our neighbors have a, a need for a connection with other people. They have a need for a connection with something beyond themselves, some kind of transcendent being. We call that being God. We call that uh, indwelling uh, being the Holy Spirit. We walk in fellowship with the being called Jesus Christ. But everybody's in need for love and acceptance and forgiveness and healing and affirmation. My neighbors, your neighbors, you and me, we all have the same needs in every single person that God brings to us. Some way, shape, or form has the same needs that we do. They may have a completely different status in life or a completely different look to them or different politics or different sexuality or orientation or whatever, but all of the needs are the same. You can take that to the bank. I'm kind of, I embarrass my family because I talk to almost anybody, but this particular evening when I went over to the Albertsons, I was by myself so I could talk to whoever I wanted to talk to. <laughs> and so I was at the self-checkout stand and it occurred to me the lady over there looked really familiar. Uh, she looked like she had had a really hard life. She had on a dirty t-shirt. Um, she was checking herself out. And I said, I know you. And she's just like, I didn't know if she was going to go for a gun or what. I said, no. I said, you're that lady. You're the sign lady over on Mountain. And you've been doing it for years. Do you have Liberty Insurance people with the signs over here? They wear those flimsy green ro robes that look like the Statue of Liberty, and they have the foam hat on their head, and then they have the sign that they do this. I go, I know you. You are that lady. And she is just like almost kind of shaking because she doesn't, didn't know where I was going with this. <laughs> but I have noticed this person because she's kind of, she has this unique herky-jerky kind of thing, and she's been doing it for years. And I said, you're that lady, aren't you? I go, hi, I'm Perry, and she goes, I'm Pat. And I said, I just want to tell you something. I said, you are one of the hardest working sign people that I see out there. When you do your sign thing, you, you are committed to it. That's why my family doesn't want to be with me, because <laughs> these are the conversations I have. I say, you are, you, I just want you to know that your hard work is noticed by people who drive by. And, and the tears started to drop onto her dirty t-shirt and create kind of these, these marks. And she said, you don't know how much that means to me. She said, I haven't always done this. I used to be a teacher's aide up at a junior college in our area. And she said, um, but they let me go. And uh, this was the first thing that came along. And she goes, I, I really wish I could use my other skills. But this is what came along. She goes, you know, over Christmas, I put in a two-hour stint. Um, and." Uh, she gets paid $8 an hour, I did a two hour stint. And my boss, Tony, gave me $20. And I, I didn't know what to do. I said, 
I said, Tony, I, I go, is, is this $4? Is this a, a Christmas bonus? He was, he was bolstered. Is this my Christmas bonus? He said, no, I just didn't have the proper change, and I'll, I'll take the $4 out of your next paycheck. <laughs> she told me. <sighs> and I'm just going, God, this lady is just like me, dying for a, just a little bit of an affirmation, someone to tell her that she's, she's all right, that she works hard, and she's not the trash that all the people driving by probably think she is. And it occurs to me, brothers and sisters, that we have an opportunity, the greatest opportunity, to be agents of God's love and affirmation and encouragement to the people around us that are mired in brokenness just like us. And just like I kind of brighten up when someone gives me that sense of attaboy or that compliment or that sense of being worth something, so also we have that in common with all the people around us. When people come into your midst, understand that no matter what walk of life they're from, that their needs are exactly the same as yours and focus on that commonality rather than all the things that are different. I'll do the next two real quickly. We have a common condition, and that's brokenness, a common, common needs, a need for connection and love and affirmation. And number three is we have a common solution. Common solution. The common solution that, that we would, uh, we would uh, proclaim to the world is the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace. St. Augustine called it God's unmerited favor. There's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. Can't get it at Albertsons, can't get it at Starbucks, can't even get it at Chipotle. It is God's unmerited favor, and all we can do is receive it and give praise for being uh, unworthy recipients of it. Stories told of C.S. Lewis, who at some gathering in... Uh, probably at Oxford, um, was out of the room and the scholars and the thinkers and the theologians that were gathered got into a heated discussion over uh, what if any characteristics of the Christian faith were unique to, to Christian teaching, unique to the Christian experience. And this was going on, going on, going on. It got very heated, got very... Um, the, the debate was strong, uh, and just at that point, C.S. Lewis stuck his head inside the room, said, what's all the hubbub about? And they told him, they said, we're trying to discover what is the unique, the unique aspect, the core aspect of Christianity that's different from other re world religions. He says, it's easy. It's grace. Turned on his heels and walked out of the room. Grace. We are recipients of the unmerited favor of God through Jesus Christ. Can't earn it. It's what changes our lives. When people come into our midst, it is the solution to the brokenness for the people we meet and the world.
in which we live. People won't always understand it at first. They won't uh, readily accept it at first. But they certainly will notice it when it's doled out in abundance. Grace. I would suggest that grace is the elemental nature of the church. It is what we give to people no matter where they're at in their lives, where they're at on their spectrum. We give them grace. It's our connecting point and our beginning point with people who have a common condition and common needs as us. It's the common solution. Finally, and I, I need to finish up here with what I would call a common calling. A common calling. Notice what, what uh, Peter says in verse 35 about Cornelius and who God accepts. God accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. God is inviting all people to a common calling, and that is to, first of all, engage with God. It, the word here is fear. It's, it's better stated as awe or reverence. It is a connecting point with God. And then to do what is right. And this is a loving response to God's grace. This is us living lives that are so overwhelmed with the grace of God that we decide to offer this grace to those around us. Fearing God and doing what is right. These are the common four. These are what we can take to the bank in terms of what it means to be a welcoming church. That we have a common condition, we have common needs, we have a common solution, we have a common calling with everybody that God has created. Now it's up to us to figure out how to represent that, how to program for that, how to communicate that with a, a world that's lost and without meaning. I think you guys are a pretty welcoming group. I don't know. I felt welcome. I still have my shirt on. <laughs> but imagine what God could do as he opens up our hearts to the greater needs of those around us. I would call these the common four. You know, uh, uh, let me just conclude by uh, something that God's been speaking to me is that one of the downsides of grace is that God's grace uh, meets us where we are, but is not content to leave me where I am at. Um, you know, if you can imagine being a loving parent and just letting your kids just kind of continue to be the way they want to be. Yeah, I know I have a 16-year-old at home. And I tell you, Marta and I were talking last night. Parenting is exhausting because we always want better for our children. And, and um, God's grace is, as Bonhoeffer said, it's costly grace. It's costly. Partially because God has so much for us. He loves us so much that he welcomes us all to his throne room of grace, but God is never content to leave us as we came. He always wants to send us away more closely resembling Christ. And God is, God's grace is relentless. It is relentless. And it's beautiful. And so um, 
Let's pray together, and, and I just want to thank you for welcoming us into your grace this morning. I want to pray that God's grace would be sufficient for everything that we encounter this week. Thank you, God. Oh, we're so blessed and overwhelmed to be in your presence this morning and to be able to, uh, to just consider what took place um, so many years ago in, in the house of Cornelius by this, the Mediterranean Sea and what you began there, Lord, and how with fits and starts uh, it continues even to this day. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to tear down all the walls of hostility, the dividing walls that keep us from uh, sharing your love and your grace with the people around us. Help us to obsess about those things that we have in common with them rather than those things that divide us. And Lord, we just thank you more than anything that Jesus is enough. Help us to be a church for all people, a loving and welcoming church.